This episode is brought to you by Mountain Sea Media. I spend half my life near the Pacific Ocean and the other half in the mountains. These places are full of profound stories and experiences that guide my life even now as a media creator and beer professional. This is what gave birth to Mountain Sea Media, the stories that impact our lives and give meaning to our business. Stories share good experiences and the warmth of friends. They improve business by sharing these experiences and connecting deeply with our customers. If you'd like to connect better with your customers through copywriting and storytelling, contact me at jeremy at mountainseamedia.com. It's your story. I'll help you tell it. Welcome to episode 50 of Good Beer Matters. Gone are the days of just being able to open any old brewery and make money at it because people want to try craft beer. If your whole business model is built on everything operating in magical Christmas land where everything goes exactly right, that's not a good business plan. Just for the sake of my own enjoyment, drinking the beers, eating the food, I want them to succeed. With more than 8,000 craft breweries, according to the Brewers Association, it's safe to say that we have reached a new high watermark of quality and competition. Long gone are the days when a decent brewer can just open up and succeed without a solid plan. The market for craft beer now demands a brewer must carve out a niche, make superior beer, and run his or her business better. A brewer can be a lot of things, but to be everything at the same time is a spectacular feat of fiction. Like the song says, sometimes we get by with a little help from our friends. My next guest decided to step out of his brewer owner role and become a guide for startup breweries who are navigating through the challenges of modern craft beer. His goal? To help them succeed where others have failed. My name is Jeremy. I'm a certified Cicerone, BJCP judge, IBD certified brewer, and a beer writer. I believe the art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. I believe there's a world of wisdom found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. This is Good Beer Matters. These are the stories of us, of great food and the beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 50 of Good Beer Matters with brewery consultant Rio Connolly. Last week, I can tell that uh, you and I felt that very similarly about a lot of different things. So uh, I'm looking forward to actually capturing it on 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 uh, audio this time around. That's right. We had a great conversation last week, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you more. Absolutely. Thanks for yeah. having me on. My pleasure. Thank you for being here. Um, you have a very uh, interesting story, uh, kind of going through. Um, the brewing world and then coming out uh, the other end and basically helping others. Uh, but will you, will you start out, just kind of introduce yourself if you will, and then give us a little background about uh, your uh, history with beer. Yeah, for sure. Um, my name is Rio Connolly. I'm from Salt Lake city, Utah. I grew up here and uh, I'm still there. Um, we didn't have, when I was growing up, a very well developed beer culture around here. Um, there were a few great local breweries that are still here, Uinta, Squatters, Wasatch, um, Red Rock, folks like that, um, that have been around. Um, but it wasn't in the public, you know, in a lot of uh, ways, just like it was all over the rest of the country. It wasn't in 
um, people's minds. Uh, it wasn't a part of, it wasn't a culture yet, really. It was just kind of, there were some craft breweries. Um, and so beer was not like a feature of my life growing up here at all. Um, and when I went to college for the first time in the Pacific Northwest in Washington, I noticed a distinct difference between Utah and Washington. Uh, big surprise there. Um, <laughs> you know, Washington had all the beer that you could want in a grocery store, for example, which is just not how things used to work here in Utah. Um, very little beer was available in the grocery store. Um, so I would go to the grocery store in college and see all these things that I had never heard of or thought of or note about at all. And that just kind of got my wheels turning. And I started wanting to know well, what's the difference between a Hefeweizen and a regular wheat beer. And what's the difference between a uh, pale ale and an IPA. Um, and when they say Belgian, what does that mean? And when they say German, you know, what do all these things mean? It was its own little language really. Right. Um, and that became fascinating to me, especially when that specific language is tied to something like being able to taste it. Um, I come from a family that did a lot of uh, food-related things. We're all foodies. Um, you know, my parents like to cook. Uh, I have two brothers and two sisters, and we all like to cook and eat um, and cook and eat together. And so a lot of my best experiences revolved around food experiences. And so it wasn't that hard for me to kind of transfer that affection onto uh, something like beer that had all these interesting terms that I wanted to learn. Um, so I started learning. <laughs> I started homebrewing. I started drinking beer in greater quantities, uh, trying new things. I would always be interested in, in uh, something that I hadn't had before on something new or different. Um, and by the time I got out of college, I kind of knew that the, my future was going to be in the brewing industry, definitely. Um, so when I got back home to Salt Lake, I tried to make that happen. I, uh, there wasn't, uh, as I mentioned, a, a super well-developed beer culture in Salt Lake yet. Um, and so I started looking elsewhere. Um, I got a job at the homebrew shop here in Salt Lake, a great one called the Beer Nut, um, that also was owned happened to be owned by a, a, a gentleman named Mark Alston, who's a, a friend of mine who also owns the uh, beer bar here called The Bayou, which has a, a tremendous selection. They have like 300 beers, and they've pretty much consistently had the, the biggest beer list in Utah um, for decades now, probably. <laughs> oh, wow. So um, I was lucky to get in at the homebrew shop, started learning more, homebrewing a lot more, um, and then started working to try and find a job out of state um, because there weren't, you know, I had tried to keep my ear to the ground around here and there weren't that many jobs. Um, so in about the second year I was working at the Beer Nut, I just started cold calling breweries all over the country. I think I did something of like 100 cold calls in like eight months. Oh, my um, gosh. Just just calling everybody, you know, just reading articles online, reading beer magazines. Uh, if I saw a brewery that made something I liked or something that I was curious about or that someone wrote uh, a favorable article about, I called them and I tried to get in contact with the brewer um, or a manager or an owner or somebody. And I asked if they had unpaid internships. I asked if they had part-time jobs. I asked um, 
<laughs> if there was any way that I could get my foot in the door. Um, and I kept getting turned down. I was kind of disappointed uh, for a little while and frustrated, but I kept at it because I knew that the, the right opportunity would come up. Well, and um, how, how long had you been homebrewing? I mean, what was your brewing experience when you were trying to get into some of these jobs? Right. So I, I kind of skipped over that. I had, I started homebrewing uh, my second year at college. So I started homebrewing when I was 19. Um, Good for you. Because you don't, you don't have to be 21 to buy the ingredients. So. <laughs> That's um, right. But I, I started homebrewing then and, and had it developed uh, very well. And at the so I had no professional brewing experience at all. But uh, working at the homebrew shop, I was not only, you know, I had gotten the job at the homebrew shop by the, the manager there, a, a wonderful lady by the name of Jamie Burnham, had asked me, you know, the interview process was like, all right, teach me to brew beer. Mm-hmm. And I was able to, on the fly, just list off the entire process and the important measurement points um, all the way from buying ingredients to package, and that was enough to get me hired. Um, and then once I started working at the Beer Nut, uh, my skills just got better. I switched from extract brewing to all-grain brewing, which was a big leap for a lot of home brewers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes such a difference. It's <laughs> so much more fun, I think. Um there's a, there's and a there's a lot more just, knowledge and a greater degree of control when you go all grain, and so it, right. it's, as soon as you go all grain, it's like all right, this this is this is it. We're we're we've got our hands on all the dials and buttons and knobs and everything. That's exactly right. I I, I appreciated the control and I appreciated the more hands-on approach with actual grain. You know, the extract is fine, but it's adding this syrup, and you know, no one gets into brewing for handling syrup. We get into brewing for touching and smelling and feeling and tasting grains mm-hmm. and hops and other ingredients. Um, and so that was a big deal for me to go to all grain brewing. Um, so I had my homebrew set up. I had uh, some friends that I homebrewed with, uh, but I didn't have my foot in the door anywhere, um, just waiting for that opportunity. And I was very, very lucky. It came along in the form of a, a brand new brewery opening in Salt Lake called Epic Brewing, uh, which has since spread all over the country, opened a, a much bigger production facility in Denver. Um, they've gotten around quite a bit. <laughs> and uh, I was in the right place at the right time and got asked to help open that brewery. I uh, became the head brewer there. Uh, sorry, no, I, I wasn't the head brewer. The head brewer there's name was Kevin Crompton, and I became his right-hand man and learned just the time. I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better education in uh, craft brewing than, than being under Kevin Crompton at Epic because uh, they were very ambitious there. And it was basically a crash course in everything I needed to uh, learn to run a brewery for two years straight. Uh, it was fantastic. Awesome. So uh, and so here you are kind of, you, you're, you're finally a brewer. You're finally a professional brewer. You're learning, you're um, grooving. You're, were you coming up with own recipes as well? A little bit, yeah. I mean, that was one of the happiest days of my life was, um, you know, they, they come with, uh, Kevin had these great, this great lineup of a ton of different beers. Epic made a lot of different beers. I think we probably did something like 30 different brands in our first year, um, uh, really high. And uh, I really appreciated that. And so the one day they gave me, a, I'm working on the brew house, and they gave me a problem to fix. They said, well, we only use, this one yeast that we're bringing in for one beer. And so it's expensive. Every time we bring it in, 
we make a good amount of that beer. It was an American wheat. And then we don't need the yeast anymore, and it goes down the drain. And so it's just kind of expensive. What can you do? Can you come up with another beer? And I was like, yeah, I have another beer for this. Um, I love that yeast. Uh, We're going to do a rye beer because we don't do one right now, and I love rye. Um, And I made this very, very tasty rye beer that (laughs) my boss came up with a name for. He called it Rio's Rompin' Rye. Oh, nice. Um, (laughs) I just kind of laughed at Um, it's a great name, but it was a very solid beer. And that was my first like official commercial beer that got into production. Um, and it's still like one of the proudest moments of my life. That is cool. Um, so that, that's kind of like the, from what I remember of your story, that was like, that leads you up to the halftime of your story. How does the rest of the story go? Right. So, um, after a couple of years at Epic, um, loving my job, loving, the work, but just working myself really hard. Um, I started uh, hanging out more with my brother, who had done some home brewing with me, um, and a friend of ours named Andrew. Uh, my brother's name is, is Liam, um, and they were both in the world of uh, professional cooking here in Salt Lake. Mm. Um, they uh, had worked at restaurants together, had worked separately, had worked in different parts of restaurants. Um, Andrew at the time was in food distribution and my brother was a chef. Um, and they had been talking amongst themselves about potentially starting a restaurant, taking what they knew and doing it for themselves. And that kind of played into this old fantasy that my brother and I had had about starting a brewery together. You know, I think everybody has that fantasy a little bit when you get into home brewing. Yeah. My, my brother like, and I have conversations like that all the time, but we're, we're looking for somewhere decidedly more tropical. that's that's actually come up with uh those guys as well like uh, we're all big fans of costa rica so we keep talking about uh, tamarindo brewing company or something like that uh, at some point yeah um we we might need to chat more offline about that (laughs) (laughs) um very fun but uh, so they they started talking to me and, and we started maybe incorporating beer into this uh into this project of theirs um and it really started to crystallize they would do these really fun dinners where they would come up with like a 10 course menu of great food um, and sell little sell seats to their friends and family. Um, and so we'd get like 10 or 12 people coming to this 10 course pairing menu and I would sous chef for them. They would be the, the two chefs and I'd sous chef for them um, for fun on the weekends and we'd be drinking beer while we did all the, uh, you know, food preparation and cooking, um, and then drink beer all night. Sometimes we did beer pairings, but more often wine. Yeah. And that kind of crystallized that working relationship between the three of us. And it started to look like, Hey, we could really do this. So sure enough in, uh, 2012, I left, um, Epic Brewing, uh, and briefly attended the Siebel Institute of Technology in Chicago for a course there. Um, America's oldest brewing school. Yeah. Great folks there. Um, uh, which <laughs> ended up being kind of, um, I should have taken a more advanced course. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, the, the intro course was, uh, very solid, some fantastic people, but just a little less advanced than I needed it to be, but that's okay. Um, which is then, a nice way of saying that, that you were, you were already there. You were, you were looking for the next step and that, that particular class was not your next step, right? Right, that's that's a that's a great way to put it. Um, they're fantastic folks there, but I was just a little. I should have been screened into another class. Yeah, that's all right. Um, 
But uh, in late 2012, we found a space. Uh, I guess we put the space on contract in that summer and then started construction that fall um, at a little neighborhood to the north of uh, downtown Salt Lake called The Avenue, up on a hill. Um, and we found a great location and installed Utah's smallest brewery there. It was the smallest until relatively recently. I think someone opened a Nano uh, brewery around here. Um, but it was just a little five-barrel system. Um, oh, wow. Small kitchen. The restaurant seats about 60 people um, and has a little separate bar area. And we tried to make it, you know, we were going to make a go of it. This was going to be ours. And uh, and it's still up and today. We opened in April of 2013, and now seven years later, it's still open, and we're very happy. Uh, we've taken that success and opened a production brewery. We opened a more production-oriented facility in 2016, Proper Brewing. I guess I should say, yeah, that first restaurant was called The Avenues Proper. Okay, yeah. And then we opened Proper Brewing and Proper Burger in 2016. Proper Burger is like a little fast, casual uh, food thing in a building next to our bar and production facility. Um, and then let's see in late 2018, we opened, uh, another restaurant we call Stratford proper in a neighborhood, um, called Stratford, basically on a street called Stratford Southeast of downtown Salt Lake. And then in April of 2019, we opened a brand new bar, um, called craft by proper, which is focused on serving our product, but also all the other amazing beers that we have in Utah, which is kind of a theme that runs through a lot of our stuff. We're big believers in boosting everybody around us as well. Well, there's just some fantastic product being made here. And so there, there's several little things. I, I, if I can like just pause your uh, progression of your story, let's dive into the weeds on this, on this part of the story right now. There's, there's a few, few little things here that I, I want to kind of, um, dive into. One is, so you guys became pretty much a, a gastropub. You were all about the beer and food pairing from the very beginning, correct? Yeah, that's a great way to think of it. Um, we really, again, my brother and I have all these food experiences. Andrew had all, had all these food experiences, and we really wanted to elevate the level of beer and food discourse going on in Salt Lake City. People were doing the occasional beer pairing dinner, but not like wine pairing dinners, right? Wine pairing dinners are often way more common. Um, and it's been really awesome in the last seven years to see it grow. And now every brewery is doing some kind of beer dinner with a cool restaurant every other month or so. You know, there's so many more of them now. And it's fantastic. Well, and I would imagine that, you know, any big city is going to have a pretty good food scene um, just just from the sheer population of it all. And, and uh and of course, you know, Salt Lake is is pretty savvy. I I believe about that too. Um, but but here we are in Utah. And how did how did people respond to the beer and food pairing? Oh, really, really well. Um, you know, it was kind of interesting at first. We opened um, with a little more focus towards fine dining. We kind of wanted to be a a, a really kind of ritzy, classy you know, small plates and really artisan put together dishes, uh, you know, that type of menu with our beer. Um, and, you know, alert, it was a learning curve for us because we basically adjusted the menu a little bit more over time over the next year or so that first year to reflect more uh, pub, just classic pub fair tastes. You mm. know, people 
wanted a certain kind of food um, when it came to beer, which was kind of a really interesting learning curve for us. It wasn't always, you know, we we struggled with that just at, at the beginning. We were like, well, we have this vision, and then we realized, well, it's about our customers and what they want. Sure. Um, but that always so takes we a little, in, that always takes a little so, bit of education as well. I mean, were were customers right. confused by coming in and and having like uh, you know roast duck and cassoulet with an IPA, or or, or 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 is it just or were they just like, no, you have burgers and fries with beer. We we have the fancy stuff with wine. What, what was the dynamic right. there? It was it was kind of like that. It was people weren't quite sure what to do with us. They were like, well, we're you're selling beer, but you're not selling like burgers and fries and we and we did have a burger on the menu but uh and our fries were really really good but they wanted more of that they wanted um you know i guess there's this thing that i love about beer that even as it becomes you know classier and and everybody agrees it's a very uh well-made artisan classy beverage um beer just has this inherent aura of approachability right um it's always seen as somewhat more casual than wine yeah um, and, you know, during that particular period, that might have bothered me. And then I came to really kind of understand it. And I really love how much beer is this universally approachable beverage. Um, and I think, you know, in this current, uh, you know, climate of like making really amazing beers all over the world, if we lose some of that, I really think that'll be a loss. Um, because I, I think one of the great things about beer is it's really easy to appeal to everybody. Um, and in a very kind of casual, no frills, um, kind of way. And, and we ended up changing our, our menu. We didn't change our like ethic or our approach. We still make, you know, everything that we can from scratch. We're committed to doing like, we make pickles from scratch. We cut our potatoes every day, uh, to make our French fries. And we make them in the old school way where we soak them and then par fry them and then, you know, finish with the double fry mm-hmm. um, to make classic Belgian style frites, um, and you know that that it's a it's an ethic, it's an approach. Um, so we we found that people did want a little bit different menu, but that they loved our our attention to detail and quality. And um, you and you bring up a really good point. Um, you know, it, you know, being a cicerone and all the stuff that I talk about on the podcast and writing and everything else is I don't want to turn beer into uh, a snobbery or snobbish thing. Um, and I've never tried to preach that. Instead, I've just, you know, tried to preach more mindfulness of it. But that's not to say that that you can have that fancy uh, white linen tablecloth, roast duck and cassoulet with, with an excellent beer that would match it really well. There is a beer for that. But you can also just have that burger and fries, but have a better burger, better fries, a better Cuban sandwich with a better beer, along with better appreciation. It doesn't have to be fancy or snobbish. It just has to be better. That's exactly right. You know, I think I think we're all, um, people are finally kind of realizing that quality doesn't have to come with some of the, like, uh, social constraints of quality, you know, mm-hmm. some of that snobbishness. Some Power of that, to the people, uh, man. Ex- exclusion, right? Because that's really about, like, exclusion um, to me. Like, you know, by excluding a set of the population saying, like, oh, you're not smart enough, you don't know, you don't have enough class, you make your thing more exclusive. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I love about beer is beer is very inclusive. Um, beer, you know, everybody <laughs> likes beer, and it's 
uh, it's been traditionally just uh, something that rich folks can like, poor folks can like, everybody can like it. Doesn't matter what class you are. It doesn't matter your culture. You probably will enjoy some beer. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but uh, so here we are. You 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 have this great food, this great beer. People are digging it. You're putting together these uh, food pairings uh, in ten courses. That's uh, wow. I. My my palate is getting fatigued just thinking about that. But uh, how extraordinary we, we, that must have been. <laughs> we did less of that at the. We didn't do the big ones at the restaurant. Most of the dinners at the restaurant were uh, five to six. You know, four to seven courses. Oh, all. perfect. Um, but so, but but you're still in Utah, and there there's a certain attitude about alcohol that kind of permeates through uh, Utah, partly from um, you know just religious orders over there too. What what was the what was that dynamic like when people came in? Yeah, that can be tough. Um, you know, the biggest way it, it kind of affects us in Utah is with um, licensing and some of the legislation surrounding bar licenses specifically. Um, you know, so a standard restaurant license, which is what we opened with, uh, means that you have to have um, food to order alcohol. So someone couldn't just come in and have a pint of my beer, uh, which was frustrating. Uh, we added some stuff to the menu, um, some snacks, you know, and we continued our little, uh, so one was like a, a duck fat popcorn, um, <laughs> that was really, really tasty. Uh, that was on the menu for like two bucks or something like that. So that you could come in and get a pint and just have to have a little popcorn in front of you. Um, the other difficult thing with that specific license is the state regulates what your sales can be, um, of food compared to alcohol. So, on a standard restaurant license, it's set up to uh, be 70-30. Um, so you cannot have more than 30% of your revenue come, um, you know, your gross sales, your total gross revenue can come from alcohol at all. Um, so that's, you know, anybody in a brewing business, uh, food business, uh, brew pub, anything like that, anybody will tell you that, you know, the whole point of, putting a craft beer kind of concept with a restaurant is often because craft beer is a draw and you bring people in and make money off your craft beer and your food is to get, you know, get them in the door as well so that they can have a bite to eat. But you're generally not making as much money on your food as you are on the beer. Well, I was going to say, so, yeah. I mean, selling your own beer, that's where the margins are. That's where that's that, you know, that pays for, you know, expansion, but the food is, is just kind of like a, uh, that's just like a, uh, community uh, offering type of thing. It's just a uh, do right. the right thing. Um, so that's tough because we, we operated under that license and are still generally operating under that license. We now have a bar license, a full bar license, which um, at that same location, uh, so we have two licenses there now. Um, and that license, the bar license, we can serve you beer without food. We can serve you as much beer as you um, safely can drink at that location. Um, so that's nice. Um, but it's, it's the only thing with Utah is that licenses like that bar license aren't generally available. They're not just something you can go to the state and ask for. They have to be, uh, the, the way the state does it is on a population based quota system. Mm. Um, so that's kind of annoying because there may just not be a specific, you know, that license available this month and there might be 20 people, um, 20 different, developers or bar owners looking to open new projects um 
who all want that one license that's going to come up next month, and they, you get on the list and you hope. Wow. So, so needless to say, and I'm going to set this up for the rest of your story. But so not only do you have the experience of of brewing and putting events together, uh, opening uh, you know a, a small brewery and expanding that. Um, but you also have uh, experience working with very atypical situations, correct? <laughs> right, I would say. Um, you know, Utah is not the... It's been pointed out to me numerous times by friends, family, and other people in the beer industry that, hey, you know, Utah's not the easiest place to open a brewery <laughs> or a brew pub. You know that, right? Yes, yes. Um, it's It's been a challenge, but it's also a great place to live, so... Yeah, uh, and, and I'm sure if you were to ever leave and open up a brewery somewhere else, it's, it's just going to be easy. <laughs> it's going to be like a downhill slide. It's like, oh. Or it might come with its own set of challenges, but they won't be the same ones that I've faced here. Yeah, I, I, yeah I'm, I'm sure. Um, so, okay, so that was your experience. Uh, and, and so your role there at Proper was you were an owner. You were also uh, the head brewer. Do I remember that correctly? Yeah, that's right. So um, I was uh, the head brewer, and while we just had our first restaurant, that wasn't a full-time job. So I also did restaurant management, and uh, I was the manager of our entire beverage program. Um, so setting wine menus, cocktail menus, um, working with uh, representatives to bring in you know new product, uh, working with my bartending staff to set menus. Um, really, really great times doing that. Well, and and uh, and I think you told me when we spoke offline that um, that you didn't necessarily come from a business background, but after doing all this stuff, you got uh, yet another uh, very uh, worldly education on running a business. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have to attribute some of that to my uh, still current business partner, Andrew Tendick. He's uh, um, really taught me a lot about, you know, we, we all kind of learn together, and he made a point to to really make sure I understood the economics of what we were doing in terms of, you know, how much money we could put into each drink, um, for example, in the cocktail program, or, you know, what what were the, the math to do to understand how to make a beer that wasn't too expensive, that didn't have some, you know, really exotic specialty ingredient in it that would break the bank. Um, so no saffron still, allowed. <laughs> Well, while still allowing me, um, you know, as a group, we still allowed all of each other to uh, have the creative freedom to really express ourselves and do a really, really quality product. So, and then, so at some point, um, and I'll just kind of help progress the story. At some point, um, you're, you're still involved with proper brewing, but at some point you left. That's right. Um, so relatively recently, um, we've been... Uh, Proper's been doing great. We have all these other locations open now, um, and we're growing the brewery. Our, we did about, you know, just under 2,000 barrels last year, and our goal right now is to grow that to about three to four to even potentially up to 5,000 barrels over the next handful of years. Um, and I found myself, for whatever reason, um, dragging my feet a little bit in some of those preparations and some of those discussions. Um, and I had this great staff of brewers under me, uh, these guys that I had hired and, um, you know, really, I love those guys. They're amazing. Um, and they're chomping at the bit. They're younger guys like I used to be, and <laughs> they're just ready to go and express themselves. And I'm dragging my feet because I don't, 
you know, I don't relish the idea of an office job where I'm not, where I'm running a big, bigger operation. I don't have these hands-on experiences with the grain anymore, with the, with the hops anymore, with the ingredients. Um, and as you become a bigger brewery, there's also lots of economic concerns in terms of, you know, who are you going to be handling, uh, you know, who's going to handle your distribution? Um, which products are you going to try and get in which markets? And how much of that product do you then have to make? Um, you know, what are your margins on that? And while I felt comfortable doing that kind of stuff, it wasn't as much, it wasn't as exciting for me to do it in that same context with everybody that I'd done done it with there. Um, and so I made the decision. Uh, it was a tough decision to make, but I made the decision to step away from proper brewing. Uh, I'm still an owner there, um, so I'm still, you know, vaguely involved. But the day-to-day operations are really up to my business partners, Liam and Andrew, as well as uh, my very excellent brewing staff, Jack Kern, Matt, um, Matt Sargent, and Jeff Bonk. Uh, who are just fantastic dudes who are really killing it since I, since I left. So I stepped back at the end of August this year um, and have been basically running a small consulting gig ever since. Uh, my little business now is called Faultline Beverage Consulting, and I work with local uh, producers here in Salt Lake who are interested in getting their business started or taking it to the next level. And that's, i got to say, it has been a lot of fun. Um, so far, I've only had a, a handful of clients in the last few months, um, but they're all passionate about what they're doing. They're doing really interesting things. Uh, it's fascinating. Well, and, and I mentioned this to you when we spoke offline, but I'll, I'll say this now on air, too. Um, I, I thought that your decision to uh, leave proper uh, took a great amount of self-awareness and a great amount of maturity that not, um, you know, some brewery owners uh, have that, but not all of them. Um uh, I've I've experienced uh, brewery owners who are probably their own worst enemy, um, and so kudos to you for for making that decision when you're feeling that way. But um, but yeah, uh, th- then that's really uh, that's the biggest reason why I wanted to have you on this podcast is to really dive into uh, brewery consulting, um, and and I think your backstory will just kind of lend. Uh, people understand how someone becomes a brewery consultant and the value of. So let, let's let's talk about brewery consulting specifically. Um, yeah. What exactly is it? Who who are you serving, and what are you doing with them? Right. So um, I have a uh, you know uh, it's kind of the the old story. You know, take my exact story and take out some of the luckiness that I had because I was extremely lucky. Um, I'm a home brewer. I have excellent product. I make great beer at home. I love my beer. I'm passionate about it, and I want to turn it into a business, but I don't know the first thing about starting a business. You know, For example, uh, to, to put that in context of what I just said, I was extremely lucky to have uh, my friend Andrew Tendick and my brother Liam Connolly um, to open a business with. If I had tried to do it myself, I don't know what I would have done. There would have been just huge portions of things that I wasn't prepared to handle that I didn't know and that I might have, you know, made many mistakes at. Um, and we all learned together, but there was a lot of stuff that I benefited from them knowing already. And they benefited from me knowing already. Um, is it better so, to go into something like this with partners? It, it can be. It depends on your working relationship with your partners. Oh, true. Um, you know, I, it wasn't always easy to work with my brother. Working with family can be difficult. 
it's not always easy to work with friends. Um, being honest with each other, being able to, to say hard truths can be really difficult. Um, you know, I feel stronger for having come out of that process. But yeah, it's not always easy. Doesn't matter who who is with, who's with a spouse or a sibling or uh, your best friend since you were six years old. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Um, and so, you know, a lot of those, the whole time I was coming up when I was kind of making the decision to get into consulting, I kept thinking back and you know thought, man, if I, I really don't want, I, I hate the idea of somebody having this excellent homebrew and all this passion for for a product and then just stumbling over some stuff, you know, homebrewing is great. And the, you know, most of the industry's best brewers have come out of that background, but homebrewing is not commercial production. And if you think you can just go from one to the other without any additional learning, without any additional help, it's not that you'll fail. You'll probably learn. Most folks who are homebrewers are, are great self-starters. We're, um, interested in process, so we learn things. But did you, you know, lose a hundred thousand dollars in that first year of trying to be open while you were learning, and then your business had to close because you didn't have any money? I hate that idea. I hate. I've seen it happen. I've seen breweries open um, with good, solid product, and then it wasn't the product that killed them. It was the lack of understanding how to do some of the business side of it, or they made great homebrew product, and then they couldn't translate that into a, a final production scale uh, thing and have and have their passion come across. And that really kind of bothered me um, that I would see that kind of thing happen every once in a while. And so I thought, oh, I can, I can do this. I can bridge this gap for people. I can provide um, the information they need to not make some of the mistakes that I've made or some of the ones that I've narrowly avoided making. Because of some of the lucky chances I had, I've I've heard of breweries uh, who had a great product, a great space. Um, you know, people loved them; they were super popular. But they ended up folding, just for the simple, uh, not so simple fact, but for the sake of this, the simple fact of that they they didn't strategize their business well enough, where they just didn't have the cash flow. I mean, maybe they bought all their equipment outright because someone told them that's the best way to go. But but next thing you know, it's like something broke, or they they can't pay bills because you know everything is tied up in the the next uh, batch of beer that they haven't sold yet so it, it's like right. st stuff like that is just like if you're really if you're a really good brewer and you're a great salesperson if you're great this that and the other thing there's always these other little components of the business that need to be understood and dealt with that's right you know i couldn't have said it better myself um having my two business partners um let us really focus in different areas. And if I'd had to focus on everything, you know, nobody's a great everything. Um, show me the person who can do all of it at once and I'll, you know, take my hat off to you. But um, that's just impossible. And, and, you know, especially in, you know, all of us had worked in restaurants. And a lot of us had come from kind of a restaurant background. Um, and, you know, 80% plus of all restaurants close in their first year. And, you know, why is that? When you think about it, it's not because people are making terrible food. You don't get into the restaurant industry to make terrible food. You make food that you're passionate about. But maybe the costs of the food are too high and mm -hmm. you're selling it for too little of a price. Or maybe you're not appealing to the right customer base and you can't get people in the door. Or the interior is unwelcome, you know, any number of things. Um, and some of those mistakes are so easily, you know, I... I I hate it with breweries. I hate it with restaurants. I've gone to restaurants that have been fantastic 
and then closed six months later. And I'm like, but that food's gone. I wanted that food. It's, you know, right, so part yeah. of it's like this very greedy side of me where like, I think there are all these amazing people with amazing uh, food and beer recipes and concepts and stuff out there. And just for the sake of my own enjoyment, um, <laughs> drinking the beers, eating the food, I want them to succeed. Um, and so if I can help provide the resources that let them do that, uh, the information, uh, the references, the uh, strategies, um, then I'm more than happy to do so. Well, so, you know, here we've, uh, this is kind of something that's happening at different times around the country. Um, you know, I, I live in the Northwest and, and the, the big craft beer explosion was the 2000s, 2010s. It's slowed down a little bit now, but, uh, that was where, you know, as we called it, the rising tide will float all ships. And you and I use that in terms of supporting and collaborating with each other. And and and, and uh, certainly like Bend, Oregon, for example, Portland, Oregon, for example, um, you know, you have one good brewery, no big deal. But when you have competitors out there, quote unquote competitors, and you've got a dozen different great breweries, now the hordes start coming and finding all these breweries. And that's, you know, the rising tide. But at some point... After the tide has been high, those those breweries that are not cutting it very well, those ones with the to continue the metaphor that with the leaky boats, they're going to start sinking. Um, what are what are some of these? What are some things that these breweries who are um, who are trying struggling, even though we have this this um, uh, wealth of craft breweries around the country? What can some of these breweries do to survive this uh, challenge of competition and and other things? Yeah, for sure. So it's a it's a very interesting time in American brewing right now. Um, you know, gone are the days of just being able to open any old brewery and make money at it because people want to try craft beer. Um, that was definitely uh, a viable business strategy. But the at this point, with uh, what you're pointing out is like the market is getting saturated. If you look at growth in the market nationally, it's starting to plateau. It's starting to slow down. Um, and we've never are, seen this many breweries you know, in the U.S. before, ever. Right. There's, <laughs> um, you know, we got up to the levels of pre-prohibition numbers, you know, five or six years ago, I think. Mm -hmm. And then we've exploded past that. Um, so there are more breweries than ever, uh, making more beer than ever um, in the in the country right now. And it's that's very awesome. But at the same time, um, you know, the market is getting saturated. The consumer, the average beer drinker, is becoming a more sophisticated, more savvy drinker. Um, they're going to know instead of just having the one brewery in their town and they like the IPA there, uh, they're going to be able to compare, well, this brewery, there's a, there's another brewery, they make a different IPA, and I like that one better. Um, so gone are the days of just being able to kind of coast along on the, the overwhelming boom that was craft beer for a, a little while. Um, I think now... What's really interesting to me is all the differentiation that's going on, uh, the specif uh, specialization, I guess is the other way to put it. Um, so people are starting to really specialize their brewery in one style or kind of tradition of beer, and I think that's to their benefit. You know, So um, uh, some of the great examples of this lately are folks that are kind of really focusing on New England-style IPAs. You'll go to a brewery. And that's basically all they do is hazy, juicy IPAs, and there'll be like seven different variations on the menu. 
um, a double IPA, a different double IPA, a single hazy IPA, a hazy pale ale. And they're basically doing this one style and all of its different iterations. And I think that that's actually um, really smart in the current uh, climate. You know, you take some other stuff. If hazy IPAs aren't your thing, um, there's a brewery around here in Salt Lake, Toasted Barrel, that's specializing in sour beers and mixed fermentation. Mm. Um, they occasionally pull like a, a clean beer and they, uh, you know, do some uh, an IPA here and there and stuff. But most of their beers that they're spending their time on are sours and are barrel fermented and are usually um, a mixed fermentation of, of yeast and lactobacillus. Um, and I think that's really smart. You're seeing uh, traditional things too, like get specialization breweries that are focusing on doing exclusively classic German styles, you know, a lager focused brewery, um, something like Prost in Colorado or um, here in Salt Lake, we have the, the Bohemian brewery, which is uh, based off Czech uh, brewing traditions and really doesn't make, an IPA, for example. Uh, they don't make an amber ale. They make an alt beer. Um, you know, they make these very specific kind of regional uh, specialties, and I think that that really, really benefits everybody. Um, one, you don't get, you're not sitting around as a drinker comparing, like, well, everybody makes an amber ale, and which amber ale do I like? You can choose more of a, well, I just love, you know, I'm really feeling some German beer lately. Let's go to Bohemian Brewery or TF Brewing, a brewery locally that kind of does a little more German stuff than most. Um, or no, you know, I really am feeling just uh, a big, juicy IPA right now. I'm going to go to, if I were here locally, going to Two Row Brewing here in Salt Lake. Um, and so yeah. I, I've, uh, I guess it was uh, some time ago now, but I had the uh, fortune to uh, speak with Bart Watson, who's the uh, economist for the Brewers Association. He was a guest on this podcast, and and we talked about all the stuff. But but toward the end of the podcast, I uh, very pointedly asked him, you know, Bart, if if you were to open up a brewery, knowing what you know, what would you do? And and he uh, basically gave a similar answer of just like niching down and doing something very specific. Because opening up a a small five-barrel brewery in the middle of San Diego, Colorado, Portland, um, anywhere, and saying, well, I'm going to have a couple of hazies, a couple of IPAs, and... Uh, and uh, all the usual suspects, and hope for the best. That's going. You're just creating a bigger challenge. Uh, right. And so, and we've seen a bunch of these breweries that have just kind of niched down and done something very different, very particular, and they're awesome. But the question is, are they setting themselves up for in an inevitable fall, as as you know, beer palate uh, or preferences kind of go in cycles? That, that, and that's a valid question. I don't think the industry, frankly, has an answer for you right now because um, we haven't seen the, the end game of that. <laughs> you know, um, People have really only started this trend towards specialization in the last four or five years, I think, is safe to say. Um, and I don't think we've seen the, the tastes change enough. You know, It's been all about hazy and juicy IPAs for mm-hmm. the last three to five years, depending on where you live in the country. And... Uh, you know, some folks will, are, are getting tired of it and, and don't want it anymore. Yeah. Um, other folks are still just waking up to that and are loving them. Um, or, you know, depending, it all depends on where you live and what you've had access to, right? Sure. Um, so I don't think we've seen the end game. I think that there's the potential for that. But, um, you know, I kind of I kind of take heart um, looking at the, the historical aspect of it. I'm a big... Uh, 
student of the history of beer because to me the history of beer is the history of the world um and when you look at like classic styles and how they would come in and out of favor um you know we like to think the modern beer world is so different but you know look at the heyday of goza in uh germany where goza was this extremely popular thing where everybody in the country was making it because it came out of this one region um you know the town of Goslar near leipzig and had this big explosion there and then you know was imitated all over the country and then the fad kind of died mm-hmm. um fewer people made goza and then until it became just a regional thing just in Goslar, you know the last goza brewery was i, I believe in leipzig um and it actually shut its doors in the early part of the 20th century and it took American, uh, well, it took, I believe it was revived something like 20 or 30 years later in Germany. Um, and now Americans are fascinated by the style and make more Goza than was ever made in Germany. Um, but yeah. I guess, uh, you know, looking at, I mean, I'm just using that as one example. Another great example from like Belgian tradition to me is like uh, Rodenbach, right? Mm-hmm. Like Rodenbach makes this world-class, amazing beer um, and what's really interesting about them is they really only make one beer. They make, they brew this one beer, and then every product they release is a blend of either fresh or old of that same beer, um, sometimes blended with fruit and sometimes not. Um, and so when you think of Rodenbach, you have a very clear brand identity. It's just that. Yes. They don't make anything else. They don't make a lager. They don't make a, an Abbey Ale. They make sour red beers. And they're delicious and world-class. And I think that if something like that can survive and continue to grow, um, you know, I, I really think that people will dive down and, and respect this one brewery for making this one thing really well. So if you're, yeah, the, the taste might change. Palette might change. Um, hazy, juicy IPAs might fall out of fashion. You know, they're at their peak right now, really. But maybe they'll start to fall out of fashion before too long. Um and will everybody still kind of make one? Yeah, but it'll just get added to the, the styles that have been fat, sours, fruited sours, West Coast IPAs, um, lagers, any number of things like that. But when you think like a local brewery specialized in it, as long as they don't grow too big, you know, I guess the answer that I have, I'm, I'm kind of babbling now, but the, the best answer I have for you is it all depends on the decisions that the brewery makes in terms of how large they're going to grow. Are you going to be able to sustain a regional brewery? On a specialty like hazy IPAs, no, goodness no. But are you going to be able to sustain a small local brewery that has uh, loyal clientele because they know you make this thing? And maybe that's not what they want to drink all the time or the fashion switches and you're maybe not the hottest product in town anymore. But are folks still going to come by and support that? I believe they will. Well, and that's kind of exciting for me being in the Northwest as I've, I've had a few different conversations with um Oh, different uh, kind of small boutique maltsters and and some better known uh, hop growers um, uh, and, and even some uh, breweries that really kind of hyper niche down, and just the whole concept of um, of regionality and and like home turf terroir uh, coming about it and it despite. Despite the age of Amazon and Google and Apple and, and global commerce, um, there are some signs out there that are suggesting that we might actually uh, get back to a place of regionality where, okay, you, you want to go get an IPA, but that's going to taste different in the Northwest. It's going to taste different in Salt Lake City. It's going to taste different in Austin and San Diego and, 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 and Tampa, Florida. It, it's, you know, 
and just having that that uh, that regional flavor where you kind of for those who are interested um, you know being able to travel around and just kind of get a sense of the region the people the place um, you know I think that is starting to uh, come back at least at a at a somewhat lower level but it's starting to come back a little bit and I'm I'm frankly I'm looking forward to that me too you know that that kind of thing is actually fascinating and one of the things that uh, gets me most excited when we're talking about beer these days because, you know, we we know how that process, uh, that quality of terroir has developed in the wine industry where certain grapes aren't even grown in certain regions because they don't they don't produce well there. Um, and I really like, you know, I think in the 80s when craft beer was just getting going, in the late 90s when it saw its second boom and in the, the this, this big boom that we've been having in the first part of the 21st century, um you know, you get this, uh, when you start a brewery, you get this catalog, right, from like Brewer Supply Group or some of the other big houses, and it basically gives you access to the same products, the same ingredients mm-hmm. that any other brewery has access to, right? Um, and that's not going to work to differentiate yourself just by trying to use those ingredients in interesting ways. I think you're much better off doing what you just called out, which is trying to go hyper-local, working, you know, we've seen this explosion in craft malting and micro-malting, uh, which is fascinating to me. We're, we're rediscovering heirloom varieties of barley that haven't been used or grown in hundreds of years. Um, you know, some of the, up in your neck of the woods, probably there's like Skagit Valley malting is, is bringing back all these purple heirloom barleys um, that have some of their history back in Egypt. Um, and some of the stuff is just fascinating. Same with hops, a uh, great uh, learning experience for me was, um, you know, basically the vast majority of hops come from Washington and Oregon, right? But now we're seeing Idaho start to approach uh, a similar acreage and hop growing regions across the country are starting to open up because the big beer market has, you know, provided financial incentive for that kind of agriculture. Um, and a big experience for me was tasting uh, some of the stuff coming out of Michigan for example, um, mm-hmm. because we get, you know, there's a great farm there called Hophead Farm. Um, and they, they were saying, you know, Hey, you got to try our Chinook. You got to try our, our Columbus. And I'm like, well, I've, I've had Chinook. I've had Columbus. I know what they did. No, 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 no. You have to taste our Chinook because our Chinook grown here in Michigan, totally different terroir, a totally different flavor profile. You can still recognize it as Chinook, but it's different. It's like a, a Chardonnay grown in France versus a Chardonnay grown in California versus a Chardonnay grown in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those, those, you know, just exactly what you mentioned, the, the regionality of being able to be of a place and from a specific place, that's fascinating to me. Um, and I've tried to really drill down on things here in, in Utah with that. Like we have some great local monsters and I've done my best to support them um, at our business. We buy a lot of a uh, barley that's grown just about two and a half hours away from the brewery. Um, and that yeah, that's really exciting for me, first of all. And also we make great product with it. So, Well, and if, um, I, if I can uh, just kind of um, provide a very, very shameful plug um, for anyone who's kind of interested in this, um, we'll kind of dive into this topic with um, with previous episodes when I talked to uh, Coleman Farms in particular, where they are doing a hop terroir study. Um, uh, Mecca grade estate malts from uh, uh, the first season. Uh, we, we talk about the malt that uh, that Seth is producing out there is just unlike any other 
malt. Uh, it, you know, there are some really good boutique maltsters out there, but it, it when it's that small, it's going to be very different. Um, and even, you know, to a, a brewery on the Big Island of Hawaii, Ola Brewing, uh, just the, the way that they're doing it and they're getting all this uh, local agriculture and supporting it in a very symbiotic relationship, um, you will never taste beers like that anywhere else. And it's just incredible what we're able to do when we when we kind of create a beneficial chain like that. Definitely. I mean, um, I mean, supporting local agriculture is huge. Uh, so I, I always tell breweries, you know, support your, you know, local maltster. Find out who's growing barley, who's growing hops in your region, and support them no matter what. Um, because without farms, there aren't any. There is no beer. Yeah. Um, uh, and then, you know, like just similar stories. There was a great little maltster in Reno that was actually malting blue corn. Hmm. Um, and I was getting malted blue corn from these guys. They actually have subsequently closed, and I'm basically heartbroken about it because I can't make that beer. I made uh, a blue corn a Mexican lager with it. That oh, was wow. very near and dear to my heart. Um, I loved it. It had that great blue corn flavor, which is a little different, and I actually named it after my little sister. And uh, I can't get that product anymore because they, they shuttered their doors, and no one's malting blue corn. And apparently I didn't support them enough. Um, and I can't make that beer. Nothing tastes quite like that beer. Um, so just what you pointed out, I'm not going to be able to get that back until someone starts malting blue corn again, and maybe they won't malt it the same way. So and 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 now we get into uh, versions of like vintage and 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 different flavors from year to year, and and you know that, that's kind of exciting as well. But yeah, ex- exactly. Like um, you know, we have a great maltster here in Salt Lake. He's uh, he opened uh, Utah's first maltery. Um, since before Prohibition, he calls it Solstice Malt. It's a great guy named James Weed. Um, and he's, I've really kind of been impressed by, you know, he's, he's got like a finance background but loves beer. Um, and he's very just hands-on. He'll just go try any process. So recently he bought himself a flaker. So now he can make, you know, flaked oats, flaked wheat, flaked rye um, out of local product. And he works with local farms. And I think that's just, you know, instead of buying the same old flaked, oats from the brewery supply group yeah there's nothing wrong with that stuff but it's not of this place but that's from utah well and and if you're using all the same ingredients then it really it kind of like the same thing with a chef at a restaurant i mean you know the the produce truck goes around to all the restaurants in town and they drop off the onions and the and the garlic and the everything else it you know it, it really relies on the chef to really use his or her knowledge to create something much better, which is fantastic. Same thing with a brewer. But if you have better ingredients, uh, local ingredients with more flavor, more nuance, that just makes the job way easier. That and yeah, exactly. Um, and it's also like, you know, we all know that you drink or you eat with your eyes and your ears too, right? It's about other sensory experiences mm-hmm. um, and being able to attach a story and attach a personality to a product, uh, a beer, a meal, um, you know, means a lot to me. And I think it means a lot to folks out there. Um, you know, uh, I guess, uh, you know, for us at proper, we were able to kind of close that circle. We give our spent grain to a farmer and then we buy animals from that farmer to butcher and serve in the restaurants. Um, and when I see that on the menu, I just, you know, my heart swells and I uh, just feel this incredible, um, I don't know how to describe pride, I guess. Yeah. This incredible pride in, 
in what we're doing because we're supporting this farm. We're making sure these animals are raised well, and then we're taking them from their happy lives and making sure that their sacrifice isn't in vain, that we are getting these amazing, amazing products out of them and putting them on our menu and making sure that people know that, that we've, you know, the farmer put the care, that we put the care into it. Um, that just, you know, makes me, that that's why I got into this business. Those are the types of experiences that I'd like to be able to foster in other people. Uh, when I help a brewery, I want them thinking about that. I want them thinking about where they're going to get their grain. How are they going to close that loop? How are they going to bring those kind of stories and experiences to the public? Yeah, I, I, I frankly, I feel the same way, and I'm going about it very in a different manner. But um, I, I got into this because, uh, you know, I, I don't want people that I interact with just to merely feel fed and a little buzzed. I, I, I want there to be a recognition and, and, and God forbid, if uh, maybe a little bit of an awakening to the larger world around us. And, and I think beer is a very um, wonderful tool and an unexpected tool for those who are not already kind of uh, brought into the fold like you and me in that regard. But uh, beer is a wonderful way to facilitate a, a, a kind of a, an awakening process. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I think it's that same kind of trend that's going on right now um, towards conservation of culture and, you know, certain environmental um, issues where people are really, the, who are leading the vanguard in these conservation issues are folks in, like, the food uh, industry, you yeah. know, because they're saying, like, we have to protect these waterways so that we can, and not just saying, like, oh, we need to protect these waterways because they're good, but being able to put it in a context that... Uh, people can connect with, right? Being able to say, we have to protect these waterways because they create these oysters that you love to eat, and they're these really specific, delicious oysters, and they're local, and if we don't protect the waterways, those oysters will go away. Yeah, there needs to be um, an entire context. It's not just, well, let's save the waterways, let's just save the waterways. No, there's a bigger story there. Same thing if, uh, you know, you know, um, you know, like the, I think the Hawaiian language was uh, being lost uh, some years ago, and, and people recognize that, oh, we're, we're losing this language. Well, you can't just save a language. You have to save the culture to save the language, right. and, and, um, exactly. and, and that's, a larger, and that's I, a larger process. Exactly, and I think, you know, beer culture is a great way for people to connect to that. It's a, you know, we don't, you know, a hundred years ago, everybody in this country was involved in agriculture to some degree or another. Even the manufacturing was mostly manufacturing agricultural equipment or uh, equipment for processing agricultural goods, right? And that's just no longer the way the American economy works. Um, and so we're kind of separated from where our food and drink comes from. And being able to have these kind of farm-to-table experiences for food and these you know farm-to-glass experiences mm -hmm. for beer is a fantastic way to get people connected to that tradition, to that culture, to that heritage, um, so that it doesn't get lost. Oh, man, can you imagine uh, you and I sitting around a table with a beer, uh, sitting next to Michael Pollan, with the kind of conversation <laughs> we would have? Oh, boy. Yeah, eat, eat real food, not too much, yeah. uh, mostly vegetables. Yeah. That's always my favorite takeaway of his. Um, um, so we're we're uh, running a little bit long on time, and and I want to ask one more question before we kind of finish up with my little uh, final question series. Um, but kind of kind of put your brewery consultant hat back on. 
Um, yeah. What what are what are some simple things that breweries, uh, from a business wise process, uh, whatever it may be, what are some things that breweries ought to be doing that are not necessarily doing? Um, let's see. Uh, there's one classic that I come back to repeatedly, which is uh, a concept I call the trap, um, which is where you know I guess the advice that would come out of this is. Grow slowly, grow organically. Uh, make sure that you're not just growing for growth's sake. Sure, you want to increase your your bottom line. Everybody wants to, um, but it doesn't help you if you get caught in what I call the trap. So mm-hmm. the trap is where, um, okay, hey, this brewery's not making as much money as we'd like it to. Um, we need to sell more beer. Okay, well, let's sign with a distributor or something. And not saying that distribution's bad, but uh, let's sign with a the distributor. They'll get our beer out there much more. They'll they'll represent us. We'll make more beer. Oh crap! But they got to take their piece. So, um, you know, our margin for our product just went down. Okay, so now to make that same target of of money that we were trying to make, we have to make that much more beer. Oh crap! Well, that's more than our capacity at our uh, current place. So. Okay, let's invest uh, in a bunch more equipment. Okay, well, now our overhead went up, and now we can make more beer, and now the distributor is asking for more beer, and we still don't have enough. Okay, let's invest in more equipment. And you get into this, you can kind of see where I'm going. You get into this kind of cascading uh, set of decisions um, that all work, um, you know, kind of in theory. Um, The best way to think of it is, don't get, don't overextend yourself so much so that you have to succeed, you know? So I see breweries being like, well, you know, we, the, uh, con- <laughs> the distributor said they could take twice as much as we're making now. Um, so don't just take them at their, you know, keep, keep your product scarce, grow it slow. If you buy enough equipment to make twice that product and they don't come through for you or the market changes a little bit, well, then you're kind of, up the creek, aren't you? You're your uh, host. And there's not a whole lot you can do about it at that point. You've already gotten the equipment. You've already, you know, at that point, you've maybe hired people. And if you have to contract your business, you're going to have to fire those people. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, working with labor and becoming attached to employees is one of the hardest things about running a small business. Um, so making that decision to, to fire someone uh, or let them go is among the hardest decisions you'll ever have to make. Um, and don't let it be your eagerness to expand that gets you caught in that trap and making those decisions that affect those people. You know, so I always tell breweries grow slowly, grow organically, make sure that you're not living in, um, there's a concept I work with called, uh, magical Christmas land (laughs) and, you know, magical Christmas land is the place where everything succeeds, where everything goes exactly right. And, you know, it has to. Work. So if, you're, if your whole business model is built on everything operating in magical Christmas land where everything goes exactly right, and that's where you start to break even and make enough money, that's not a good business plan. Good Grow advice. Slower. Good advice. <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you for that. Um, uh, yeah, I, I wonder how many people get sucked into that trap. And uh, um, 
I was very uh, shocked initially, and then it kind of dawned on me after a while that there's a brewery in um, Colorado that you know had a big distribution footprint. And next thing you know, we see it come through uh, the the beer news of that that they're they're kind of shutting down all their distribution. They're pulling everything back to just being a, a little local tap house, and they're selling all their equipment. And then just kind of they intentionally went stopped trying to be big and just made a decision, nope, we're going to be small again. And and that was almost like, you know, kind of the rat race of uh, just trying to work 80, 100 hours a week so you can make money so that someday you have enough money where you can just relax and do something, you know, cool and called retirement. And, and you know, it's funny. It's like, well, that I think someone uh, said that retirement is just uh, what we doing what we didn't wanted to do in college, but with more money. And so, right. <laughs> and so, so why, why are you getting bigger, bigger, bigger when you can just be what you really want to be and what you intended to be and, and don't get stuck in that trap? That's, that's exactly right. That's the, that's the advice that I'm giving. Don't just expand for expansion's sake. Make sure that you're expanding with intention, that you know how big you want to grow, that you know what kind of business that, you know, once you get to a certain size of a regional brewery, you're almost more in the logistics and shipping businesses than you are in the brewing business. Mm-hmm. You're making one or two products and distributing those as much as you can. Um, that's not really as much brewing anymore. It's now making sure that all that product gets into the right package and that you have the right products there and that it's going out where it needs to be and that the margins are where it's, and then you're watching product on the shelf. Uh, and, you know, I don't think a lot of people get into the business for that part of it. Yeah. You know, no, that's not the exciting bit of it to anybody. So, don't just grow. Um, or, you know, when I, when I look at people's business plans and I'm like, okay, you're positing, you know, a growth of like, you want to be like a six or 7,000 barrel brewery in the first two years. You think that there's a market for that. Tell me why you think that there's a market for that. And they're like, well, you know, I make really good product. It's like, yeah, but. That didn't answer the question. Could, you know, <laughs> are the sales just there? Do you think you're just going to knock everybody's socks off and everybody's going to be, that's magical Christmas land thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, Rio, I'm sorry to, I want to, I'm going to kind of turn this, uh, toward the, the final question series. Um, uh, so I'm going to have you kind of change your thought process now. So, uh, I, I get to wave my magic mash paddle and you are now the beer king, uh, or the king of the beer world for a day. What would you change? Oh. Um, I would definitely encourage people to try other beer styles besides hazies and juicies. I like them, but I'm not going to rant against them. Um, you know, the, I guess the biggest thing I would change, though, besides that, is um, the distribution model that exists in America. Um, the three-tier system that's existed since post-prohibition was put in place for a reason. But at this point, most of the larger distribution licenses in most states are held by companies that are uh, at least largely invested or partially owned by uh, big macro breweries like Anheuser-Busch InBev or the Heineken Group or SAB Miller Coors. Um, and those distribution companies aren't necessarily pushing craft in the way that they should or they're pushing their own version, you know, their, their parent company's own version of craft. Mm-hmm. I think they take too much money for a job that doesn't, I think, I, I'm just saying, I think those big companies make a lot of money off the back of you know, smaller brewers. Um, and I think that if the entire three-tier system was less entrenched in law, less codified, 
Um, that would be better for the beer drinking public and for the brewing industry in general. Interesting. That I have not heard that uh, take on this question before. But um, yeah, we've kind of gone from a tied house to a tied distribution uh, to some respects, haven't we? Right. Um, You know, and they basically make it so that they can do everything so much cheaper that it's not really worth it for the computer. And I mean, it's codified in law. It's one of those few places uh, in American, um, you know, economic law where you can't compete with them. You know, there's plenty of states out there. Thank goodness here in Utah, we retain the right to self-distribution. But there are tons of states and throughout the, the union where we breweries cannot self-distribute. They're not allowed to. They're barred from doing so by law, mm. which means that their profit margins are capped um, at a certain thing. They can't make any more than that because a good chunk goes to that distribu- uh, you know, that distribution network. And I'm not saying those guys do a bad job. They do, but I'm, uh, I'm pretty certain they're overpaid for it. Interesting. Uh, so if you had the opportunity to choose your very last meal and your very last beer before you depart this earth, what would they be? Oh, man. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, (laughs) that is very tough. I get that a lot. Um, yeah, uh, I would definitely think if I, I I know what kind of general beer I'd be wanting to think, so I'll kind of work backwards from that, um. I think the beer would definitely be something dry, tart, and funky. Um, uh, you know, Saison DuPont is a classic, but some something along those lines. Orval, actually. Orval is like one of my favorite beers of all time. Mm. Um, and so having a nice glass of Orval with its nice little uh, Britannomyces bite, its hot presence. Let's see. I think that that would pair really, really well with something hearty, um, probably French-influenced just to kind of match French and Belgian influence. So um, something like a cassoulet with duck that you mentioned earlier, maybe that's just in my head right now. But, uh, <laughs> um, some really nice cheese, um, some roasted bone marrow. Am I allowed to do multi-courses? <laughs> hey, knock yourself out. <laughs> this is your last day. Yeah, so I'll, I'll choose Orval, and I'll pair it with uh, an appetizer of roasted bone marrow. Um, with like a little parsley salad that's kind of a, a classic one on some toasted bread. Um, with a cheese course of something really nice and, and a little bit funky, some telegio or something equally rich that will stand up to uh, like a beer-washed, bloomy-rind cheese um, that would stand up to the Orval. And then maybe finish it with a, an herb-forward stew of uh, duck and beans like a cassoulet. Ooh. I think that would be that's my, yeah, I'll, I'll throw that, that out there. Right, and I love that you just kind of pulled that off the cuff and didn't just have that, like, prepped and ready to go. That, that's that's amazing. <laughs> I like I like beer and food, so I'm yeah, thinking about it most too. of the time. So off the cuff, maybe it's great. I had a glass of Orval the other day, and I'm still thinking about it. I love that beer. <laughs> Um, so with the summation of your experience in the beer biz and everything else, uh, in your opinion, why does good beer matter? Yeah, I think good beer matters because, as you know, I said it before on the episode, um, I think the history of beer is the history of the world. I think if you look at a lot of cultural advances, um, scientific advances, uh, they, you can, they can all be tied to beer. And so beer is a part of our heritage. You know, there's some anthro- anthropological theory that says that the first human settlements on the planet were 
um, permanent settlements were done specifically for making beer. Um, and I think that that's uh, a birthright and a heritage that every person on this planet um, can connect with uh, to a certain extent. And I think that good beer matters because doing right by that heritage is a way forward. That's an ethic uh, that we should all be aspiring to is respecting the past, respecting the future in, in terms of like stewardship and environmentalism and conservation. You know, if you, if you can't respect the past, if you can't respect the future, if you can't respect the ingredients, if you can't, you know, uh, buy into that ethic and let those things be what they need to be, then you're, you're not going to have a, a, a positive culture. I, I really think, I think there won't be respect for anything. Um, so I think beer is a, I, I mean, it, it ties back to the history of it because beer is and has been a staple for humanity during its entire tenure um, as an agricultural society. And if we don't respect that heritage, we will lose it. And then we won't, I don't know, we won't be as human as we were before. I don't know if that's a great way to say it. No, but that makes sense. I mean, in order to carry on the torch, we need to pass the bottle around, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that ties into all the great things that we all love about beer. Beer is social. Beer is um, exciting. Beer is, a, is, it is tasty. It's a great way to connect and share people. I mean, what's more classic, uh, classically human than sitting down to have a beer with someone? Yeah. Um, so if, uh, if anyone wants to connect with you and talk to you about uh, brewery consulting or proper brewing or anything like that, uh, how could they get a hold of you? Yeah, great question. Thanks for um, uh, The easiest way is through either my email or Instagram accounts. My email is uh, faultlinebeverage at gmail.com. That's all one word, F-A-U-L-T-L-I-N-E-B-E-V-E-R-A-G-E at gmail.com faultline beverage um and then i am i'm on instagram as well at uh, rio likes beer all one word r-i-o uh, likes beer excellent um, and i do a lot of posts about beer and food on there and if you're interested in connecting with me either place i'd be happy to either chat with you or um, look into your business model if you're trying to get something going let me know awesome <clears throat> and uh last question do you have any final words of wisdom um no, I'm just, let's see, words, words of wisdom, you know, relax, have a beer. Um, life is stressful right now in the modern world, especially with everything going on in this country and politics and stuff like that. And just plain um, old adulting. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, just relax, have a beer. Um, nothing so bad that a beer doesn't make it better has always been my philosophy. <laughs> Excellent. Awesome. Um, hey, thank you, Rio, for so much for coming on and just kind of sharing your background, but also uh, especially about the, the business side of stuff, too. Uh, I think that's something that everyone needs to hear and be mindful of. So thank you very much. I appreciate you coming on the show. I appreciate you having me. Thanks again. If you think about it, even pro athletes have a coach. Hiring someone knowledgeable to guide you is a great way to improve your chance of success. If you're a new brewer facing the beer market today, maybe hiring a consultant will be the best investment you can make. Join us in the next episode where we head south of the border to check in on the craft beer scene of Mexico with one of its best ambassadors. Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together. But it's also about better appreciation of the beer you enjoy. 
I believe better education leads to better enjoyment. So if you're a beer and food professional, or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters and visit me at goodbeermatters.net. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Cheers.